Thanks for listening to our messages from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources and information on connecting people to Jesus for life change, visit us online at southbridgefellowship.com. Good morning, Southbridge. Happy Mother's Day, moms. We are super thankful for you. None of us would be here without you. We are really thankful for all that you do, really. And uh, things that you say that you probably never thought you would say to your kids. Don't say that. Don't touch that. Get your mouth off that. Get your feet out of your mouth. Whatever it was. Whatever the things are that you say. Uh, Things that you do that oftentimes go unthanked. I hope that today uh, you know that we're thankful for you. And some of you are here today and we're unable to have children. And I just want to acknowledge that it's brave of you, courageous of you to be here. You wanted to have kids. I know some people chose not to have children, but some of you wanted to and it wasn't possible for you. And so I just want to say thank you for being here as well. And our moms, I hope you feel loved today as you leave. We get some flowers for you. And, but we're going to continue in our series in Hosea. And for some of you, you're like, oh boy, are we really? Uh, when I told my wife that, she said, how many times are you going to say the word whore on Mother's Day? And I was like, as many as the Bible says it. However many are in the Bible, that's how many we'll say. And so uh, we're going to open up our scriptures this morning to Hosea chapter 4. And so if you have your Bible, we'll be there. If you have the Bible app uh, or the app for our church, if you have the app for our church, it gives you information about events at our church. It gives you all kinds of different things. And there's a Bible app in there. The study questions that go to our small group leaders and small group attenders are in there. And so uh, if you miss a week, the sermons are actually in there. Uh, But there's also the Bible, and you can just click on Hosea chapter 4. Let me pray for us, and uh, we'll jump in Hosea here in a moment. Father, thank you. Uh, that you've given us your word, that you speak to us, and and you tell us that your word is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training us in godliness. And God, I pray you do that this morning. And I pray that we would uh, look into it and it'd be like a mirror. We'd see ourselves and that we would walk away changed, that we wouldn't forget what we see when we look in that mirror. And that we wouldn't just be hearers of these things. I pray it wouldn't just be that we learn stuff from maybe a chapter, a couple chapters of the Bible that we've never looked at before, really meditated on before, but God, that you would transform our hearts, that we would have an encounter with you as the living God, that you would change us, that we'd be transformed, not just in the way that we think, but in the way that we live. And God, will you meet with us this morning? God, I, I, I pray that, that you draw people to yourself, and you know what that means for each person here. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, have you ever thought to yourself before, it seems like there's some folks that have like a direct line with God And then there's the rest of us, and sometimes it's like a fuzzy connection. I've got Sprint as my cell phone provider, so I know all about cell phone not being connected totally. All that's oftentimes I talk to people and they'll say something to me like, "I can't hear you." (laughs) I signed up for Sprint. It's going to be at least a year. I don't know what to tell you. Just what happens. And it's like sometimes there's some people and they hear so clearly from God on a regular basis, and you go, "Am I am I the only one that it sounds a lot like myself when I'm talking to myself?" Or some of us have selective hearing, and we only hear the things we want to hear, and so then you only get part of the message. We experienced this with our, our kids the other day. Uh, many of you know that, that God's doing this amazing thing in our church where we've been on an 11 and a half year journey of trying to find a permanent church home. And uh, God blessed us with finances. We've tried different places. I remember when we first got here, uh, I told folks we're not going to be a club for Christians. And the first place we met was a country club, and it was mostly Christians uh, together in Briar Creek. And then we moved to a movie theater. Then we're here at this school. And uh, then God just, he blessed us in a way financially. We started to, to look for another place to be, and we reached out to a church down the street, just over a mile away, and it was called Covenant Church, and we asked them if we could buy their property. They said no, which we were used to, lots of no's in this process. Uh, but then they said, why don't we give you the property and join you? And they've heard of Jesus just doing a big deal in, in people's lives here at our church, and so they've heard about many of you, really. 
Some of you have trusted Christ here. Some of you have experienced freedom here, freedom from addiction. Some relationships have been reconciled. And so as we've connected people to Jesus for life change, other people have heard about that, and they wanted to be a part of that, which is an exciting thing. But last Sunday, I was able to go over there and preach to them. That's why I wasn't here. And I'm going to tell you, I was so excited as your pastor to be standing on their stage and to think about the first Sunday that we're all over there together. And I've told them how great you are, just so you know. A few of them are here interspersed with you today, just so you know. Uh, they're trying to figure out, are these people, are they really that great? They want to know. Don't let me down here. Don't let me down. You just be yourself. You're, you'll be awesome. Um, but as I stood there on that stage, I just thought, it's going to be so awesome when these, meeting these new friends of mine, and they're so great, and then introducing them to you as my church family, and, and y'all are great. It's going to be an amazing experience. But I've been going over there and getting to know them, and uh, as I've been doing that, there was a, a, not last Sunday, but the Monday before that, we were doing a, a night where it was like a question and answer night. Where I went over and just told our church story and shared some vision and some of our staff members and leaders and they were over there to answer questions that people had and our, fa- our own family has some questions and so we hopped in our minivan we're telling our girls we're going over to the new church building and we're going to meet these people be on your best behavior like look them in the eye shake their hand have good manners like all oh, don't climb on stuff like all those, those t- type of talks happen to them we get in the car we're driving then my wife and I are in the front seat. We start talking about a trip that we're going to take this summer to Africa. We're going to go visit some of our missionaries there. We've got four missionaries in Madagascar, Africa. My wife had found out what it's like to use the bathroom in the bush. They don't have plumbing like we do, just so you know. And so she starts telling me, There's this, they're going to have this curtain out there, and you're just going to pull the curtain around yourself and do whatever your business is out there in the woods. Now, remember, our kids are riding in the car. We've just told them we're on our way over to the new church building. Then they chime in, and they hear this conversation. So one of my daughters says from the back, wait, they don't have a bathroom at this new church? What are you talking about over there? Well, they were listening. Selective hearing, they were hearing. Only part of hearing. And some of you wonder if God's even speaking to you. Let me tell you something. I don't know some of you. Some of you I've never even met. I can look out here and I see a couple of faces of people I've never met. Maybe your first time yesterday. We're glad you're here, but let me tell you something. God's speaking to you. You might not know Jesus. You might be an atheist. You might be against God. Some of you might just be skeptics or doubters. You're trying to figure this out. God is speaking to you. Some of you might be at the pinnacle of your spiritual journey, like you're at the mountaintop right now, and you, and you feel like you're in tune with God. God's speaking to you. And some of you are in the valley, and you're going through difficulty, diseases and divorces and all kinds of stuff that's happening in your life. God's speaking to you. And then there are a bunch of you probably that are at this place that if anybody, if you've been a Christian for more than like two years, you've been in this place before. It's like a spiritual wasteland. You're not at the pinnacle. You're not in the valley. Kind of like, is there more to this Christian thing than this? God's got a word for you too. He's speaking to you. The question is, are you listening? And so we're going to look at it today, some of what God has to say to us when he speaks to us in Hosea chapter 4. Now, Lord willing, today we're going to cover a lot of verses. Uh, Hosea chapter 4, 5, and at least the beginning of chapter 6. And so we're going to get after it. So if you have your Bible, Hosea chapter 4. Hosea, the first of the minor prophets. Uh, We call them minor prophets, not because they're not important, just they're smaller books. And so right after the book of Daniel, and right before... The next minor prophet, you can find it when you look there. And uh, there, there's these little books that God was speaking through these, these men to his people. But he'd oftentimes give them these assignments. I believe that Hosea has the most difficult assignment of all of them. And there's a lot of theology in the book of Hosea. Maybe that's why it kicks this off, because in the, the Hebrew Bible, all these books were actually one book. Hosea was the first. And Hosea's assignment is to go take for yourself a wife of whoredom, have children of whoredom, because my people, the land, commits great whoredom. So if you want to know how many times I'm going to say it in this message, moms, that was chapter 1, verse 2, okay? And it keeps happening after that. But the, the, the real shocking thing about it that we've seen as we've been going through this series in chapters 1, 2, and 3 
is that when we read this book, we're the whores because we're unfaithful. And so Hosea is told to go marry this wife that's a prostitute, knowing that she's going to be unfaithful. And when she's unfaithful, I want you to go after her. And so we saw God's unfailing love in chapter 1. And then then when she's all used up, there's restoring love, chapter 2. And then chapter 3, even when she's being sold on the slave market, she can't even be a prostitute anymore. She's being sold into slavery, his relentless love, that he keeps coming after you. And so we've seen God's love through this book. Chapters 1, 2, and 3 are like the opening illustration of the book, just so you know. And then chapter 4, there's a transition. Chapter 4 starts about 20 years after he's had this marital situation in chapters 1, 2, and 3. Chapter 4 is now God's word to his people in light of seeing a picture of his love. Here's what he has to say to you. Are you listening? Look at it with me. We'll just read the first three verses of chapter 4 to get us started. Hear. See, he's asking, are you listening? Hear the word of the Lord. So this is God speaking. Who's he speaking to? Oh, children of Israel, his covenant people in the Old Testament. We're under the new covenant. What does he say? There's no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. And there is, and these are contradictions to some of the Ten Commandments. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds. Which probably means that they move boundary stones and steal land, and also they break all spiritual bounds. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore, here's the consequences, the land mourns, and all who dwell in it languish, and all the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, and even the fish of the sea are taken away. And then it goes on and continues to get worse and worse. And the word whores a lot of times, if you want to read through chapter 4, we're just going to survey some of the rest of it. But it's the spirit of greediness, the spirit of prostitution, the spirit of I've got to go get mine. It's like plagued the people. They're so self-centered. And so God speaks here. He says, hear. And if you get to chapter 5, we'll go to it in a little bit. It says, again, hear, O priest. Pay attention. Give ear. Are you listening? God's speaking. Do you know what he's doing? Oftentimes when God speaks, God speaks to expose our sin. That's our first point today, that God speaks to expose your sin. And that's something sometimes we oh, i got a bad connection. I don't know. I don't hear you. you know, we don't want to hear some of that. That's how God speaks, and it's not just because we're preaching out of an Old Testament prophet here today. If you want a good verse that describes what the Bible does, 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. This is the New Testament. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16 says, all Scripture is God, all of it, Old Testament, New Testament, is, is breathed out by God and profitable. So it's beneficial for what? Teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Now look at those things, teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. Of those things, how many of them do you think expose our sin? could argue all of them, even teaching. You shouldn't look at the Word and forget what you look like. What God's going to do is He's going to reveal your sin. So our first point today is this. God is speaking to expose your sin. Are you listening? Are you open to Him, pointing that out? This is something that naturally happens, by the way, when we have an encounter with God. That's one of our values as a church, is to encounter God. It's encounter, embrace, engage, encounter the living God, embrace the one another's of Scripture. That's why we do small groups and engage our world for Christ. And so our discipleship strategy as a church is to give you those environments, give you those opportunities to be able to encounter God, embrace one another, and and engage the world for Christ. But if you just think about encountering God, the definition you'll get if you go to our membership classes is to see God accurately and respond appropriately. So when you get an accurate picture of who God is, then you respond appropriately, and then we see that all throughout Scripture. So in Isaiah 6, Pastor Seth and I were talking about Isaiah 6 this week. In Isaiah 6, what happens is that Isaiah is in the throne room of God, and there's these angels there, and they've got six wings. Two of them cover their face, two of them cover their feet, two of them they fly around, and they're singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And so Isaiah realizes he's in the presence of holiness. You know what he doesn't do? 
He doesn't pull out his iPhone, grab a selfie, hashtag in God's presence. Some of us may do that in that moment. You know what Isaiah does? Woe to me! He realizes a sin. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell among a people of unclean lips. Like I should be annihilated to be in your presence. So that's, that was God. You know, he's in God the Father's presence. You see, in Luke chapter 5, there's this miraculous catch, and Peter's there. And Peter, it clicks for him. Oh, Jesus isn't just a rabbi. He says, away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. I see God accurately. I respond appropriately. It reveals my sin. Because I acknowledge, you are not like me. You are altogether different. But there he is in the flesh, and he loves, and he's pursuing relentlessly, unfailingly, with a restoring love. You think about Peter. Peter could have been like, man, see all these fish, Jesus? I got some boats. You've got this gift for finding fish. Let's partner up. 50-50. Jesus gives him a look. 60-40, we're kind of in that tithing thing, even 90-10, like I'll go with that, let's do that. My sin, that's what I see. John on the Isle of Patmos, Revelation chapter 1, the resurrected Christ appears to him, he doesn't go, my friend, I haven't seen you in so long. He falls down as though dead. Read it, Revelation chapter 1, verse 17. So God's word is God's revelation of himself. It's how he speaks. It's the primary way that he speaks to us is through his word. So when we look at his word, he's going to reveal to us our sin. And so you see in this passage, that's not the only way he reveals our sin, by the way. I was telling my wife this week, I think that one of the reasons God designed motherhood was to reveal sin. Amen, <laughs> Amen from one of our moms. We keep going. By the way, last week, they were more interactive than y'all. So you're going to have to pick up your game, just so you know. I was reading this week, I don't go off on too much of a tangent, but I read this modern day parable this week by Gloria Furman. You can just Google it if you want to. She was writing a blog, and she was, it was, a, it was a, uh, kind of a modernized version of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke chapter uh, 18, I believe it is, or Luke chapter 8. And what happens is they said there's two moms, one's perfect, one's not so perfect. The perfect mom opens her Bible to spend time with God in the morning and prays, God, thank you that I'm not like those other moms <laughs> that aren't quite mom enough whose kids don't obey and achieve as much as my kids do. And then the not-so-perfect mom opened her Bible and said, God, I need you. Not because I'm awesome, but because of your grace. Not because of my faith, but because of your, your greatness. And she doesn't go on to explain it, but in, in Luke it says, one of them went away justified. The one who acknowledged their sin, by the way. And so God uses all kinds of things in our lives. He uses circumstances. He uses those people at work that drive you nuts. He, he uses the people that are in your community group that get really close to you. He uses the scripture. He uses all kinds of things. But you look at this passage. What does it say? Here, verse 1. Here, listen. Are you listening? Here. And, and then did you see this word in verse 1? For the Lord has a controversy. Now, when we think of that, we think of like news headlines. Like there's some scandal that's going on. There's a controversy. Now we want to pay attention. Now we want to know the gossip. We want to know the dirt. Who's involved? Who knew? What happened? But it's actually a legal term. The picture here is of a courtroom. And so in chapters 1, 2, and 3, there's a marriage, a wedding, it falls apart, and then a, a renewal of that. But here we're in court. Can you imagine getting called to court by God? Like it's one thing for like you have a dispute with your neighbor about property lines or something goes wrong. I got a call the other day. I got a call the other day uh, from the IRS, they said, and they told me that if I didn't respond within 24 hours, I was going to be apprehended. That got my attention. So I called them back. And you know the first question they asked me? When's the last time you paid your taxes? And I thought, all right, I know the government's not organized that well, but you're, you're the IRS and you're asking me, and it, by the way, it was in April, just so you know. 
uh, I didn't feel real good about that conversation. I hung up. I called my attorney, J.D. Henserling. He said, the IRS is never going to call you. That's a scam. Leave those people alone. Well, I was on a car ride, so I decided to call those people back and bother them. <laughs> I wasn't scared of them anymore. And so I called them up and started asking them a bunch of questions about their home address and those types of things. They didn't like that very much. They don't call me. They haven't been calling back now. I don't, I don't know what happened. But if God calls you, here, listen up. I'm taking you to court, but here's the thing you need to realize about this passage. God, omnipotent, all-knowing God, he's your accuser in this, past, in this courtroom scene. He's the prosecutor, he's the judge, and he's the jury. Read all of chapter 4. What are the accusations? Well, the accusations is what he exposes of their sin, and maybe some of ours. And so ask yourself if these charges would stick for you. The first one, there is no faithfulness or steadfast love, no knowledge of God. We'll unpack each one of those. First one, no faithfulness. Faithfulness there doesn't mean loyalty. Sometimes that's what we think of when we hear the word faithfulness. One commentator I read said, there was no truth telling and no truth doing by these people. There was an inconsistency with the things that they said they believed and the way they lived their lives. And so the way that we'll say it this morning is this, there's a contradiction between their life and what they said they believed, because what you really believe is how you live your life. But there's a contradiction between their lives and what they said. So if there's a contradiction between our lives and what we say is true, then we're guilty of this lack of faithfulness here. And so this accusation that comes, it should stick in the, in the trial as we stand before our judge and juror God. And so you've got to ask yourself, is that the case? And so what happened for them is, is they would claim that they believed in God, and so there, there's even worship, you see, that gets condemned in chapter 4 if you go through the whole chapter. But they would go to the Baals, which are false gods, for prosperity because they want fertility, because they want the land to bless them. And so that would be the equivalent of us coming to church and saying, I believe in God, God is my provider, but really trusting in our jobs and our 401ks. It'd be the equivalent of coming here and singing a song, you are my rock, you are my shield, I want to hide under the shadow of your wing, you're my strong tower. Those are things that are said in the Psalms and the Proverbs about God. We say those things, but then all week, oh God, I've got to figure this out, and kind of stressed out, wringing our hands, chewing our nails, lots of anxiety. It would say, what you say you believe and how you live your life, they're not lining up. And we go through all the examples and take different areas of our lives. But Jesus says it like this in the, in the gospel. He says, you praise me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. Because what we're seeing is what's actually in your heart, not what's in your mind, not what's on your mouth, what's in your heart. And so that was the first accusation. The second accusation is this. There's no steadfast love. The, the word for steadfast love there, is, it's God's kind of love. It's the kind of love that we've seen in chapters 1, 2, and 3. His unfailing love, his restoring love, his relentless love, his infinite love. This amazing love that comes after you even when you're not lovable. And so here's the problem with this for us. Is there's a lot of things that are done in our culture and our society that we call love that it's just a redefinition. We're using the word from the Bible, but we're not defining it the way the Bible defines it. And so we can actually say that we love somebody and it'd be totally self-centered in our culture. And I love you. I love you for what you do for me. And we've objectified people to the point where some, we don't even think of people as subjects now. We think of them as objects. So I love you that you're going to help me get this. I love you because you make me look this way when I hang out with you. I love you because you, and it's, all the, it's actually all self-centered love. But if you look at the Bible, what is love like? 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we read the first week. It's patient. It's kind. It keeps no record of wrongs. It, it always rejoices when the truth wins out. It, it's the kind of love that we've seen here that keeps pursuing, that keeps coming after. It's ultimately the, the love that we see at the cross. That's not selfish love. Jesus was the ultimate missionary. He put on flesh, came here, dwelt among us as a human. So he felt what it was like to get sick and to be hungry. Hebrews says that he learned 
obedience. So he had to take first steps as a baby. He came and dwelt among us and was tempted in every way that you and I are tempted and never sinned. And that wasn't for him so he could be like, hey, I never sinned. What's your problem? So that he could take on your sins on the cross while we were sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5.8. That was for you. That is selfless love. And so then one of the problems here in Hosea is that you see that they don't love because they lack social justice. And so we can talk about that in our day and age, and that means like reconciliation with racial tensions. That can mean orphan care. It means feeding the hungry. There's people that don't have clean drinking water, human trafficking. We've talked about many of those things in the life of our church, but I was thinking about it, and I thought, would Jesus, would Jesus live in any of our contexts, wherever you work, wherever you live, where all those things, would he, would he send money to children in Bolivia, which is one of the places we sponsor through Compassion International, and not know how his neighbor's marriage is doing? Like, would Jesus, would he be involved in human trafficking ministries or helping hurting children in our community or, or, or clean drinking water or orphan care and not know what's going on in the life of somebody in the cubicle across from them? This is God's kind of love that we're talking about. Can we, do we say that we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, love our neighbors, ourselves, and we don't even have a clue about their needs? Well, these charges stick, and the, and the way that the, you know the real, real problem here is the third one. The third one's the chief one, and so we're going to go slower through this one. There's no knowledge of God in the land. Now, that's interesting because these people were going to worship. They knew about the parting of the Red Sea. They, they could probably tell you the stories of the walls of Jericho falling down and David and the giant, and they knew, they knew the Bible. What do you mean there's no knowledge in the land? But we see that it's a theme. And so you got it here in verse 1. We've only covered one verse. We're going to go through three chapters today. This is great. All right, I'm pace. (laughs) We're going to skim through some of this. Look at verse 6. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you from being priests to me. It goes on to talk about children paying for the sin. Verse 14. I will not punish your daughters when they play the whore, nor your brides when they commit adultery, for men themselves, don't do, the men were actually disciplining, chastising the women, but the men were the ones causing the problem. And so he says this, the men themselves go aside with prostitutes and sacrifice with cult prostitutes and people without understanding shall come to ruin. You have no knowledge. Chapter 5 and verse 4, their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. They've become hardened. Their hearts have become so hardened for the spirit of whoredom. And so it's not just the actual act of adultery we're talking about here. The spirit of whoredom is within them. They know not the Lord. You keep going through it. It's through all throughout the Bible. It's all throughout just the book of Hosea, this lack of knowledge. And so what does it mean to have a knowledge of God? Well, it does, it does necessarily mean you know God's objective truth. You've got to know the Bible. You need to know. It's not just that you have some experience, because Satan comes as an angel of light, by the way, if you just depend upon your experiences. But you've got to know that he's a redeemer. You've got to know about what does his love look like. You've got to know what are the characteristics of a holy God. What does it mean that he is righteous? What does it mean that he is all-powerful, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent? You need to know those things. That's, that's what you, you filter those experiences through. You've got to know the Scriptures. And so you have to have objective truth. You have to study the Bible. But if all you have is that, you can have no knowledge of God. Let me give you an illustration. There's a guy down the street. You can email him if you'd like to. He's a professor, distinguished professor, of religion at UNC Chapel Hill. He's written, about, written and edited about 30 books, and so you may have heard of him. His name is Bart Ehrman. Bart is a known, well-known, popular atheist. Uh, his story, though, is he had what he refers to as a born-again experience with Jesus when he was a high school student. 
then went on to Moody Bible Institute, then went from Moody Bible Institute to Wheaton College, the Christian college. Uh, Jim Elliott, famous missionary, went there. Different people have gone to school there. One of my mentors, Howard Hendricks, went there. Lots of Christians have gone there. Then he went to Princeton uh, University, got his MDiv and his PhD there, studying underneath a guy named Bruce Metzger, which was like the world-renowned Greek scholar. That's the language of the New Testament. Then he went and he was a pastor, preached on the radio, did funerals where he comforted people about the afterlife and Jesus, and now writes books to undermine Christianity. And is a, a very vocal atheist. Well, I bet he knows more Bible than most of us in this room, if not all of us, if not cumulatively many of us. He doesn't know God. Pastor Seth told me I could share some of his story today. He was a pastor before he came to know Jesus. Not here at this church, but when he was 25, he was a youth pastor. But when he was a kid, he knew the Bible stories. He knew the gospel. It's possible to know about God, to even believe that he exists. The demons believe that, James says, and they shudder. But they don't have a relationship with him. What does Job say? In Job chapter 42 and verse 5, he said, My ears had heard of you. But now my eyes have seen you. I've experienced you. See, there's a difference. Job knew the Bible. Job was sacrificing. Job was a righteous man. But here's the problem. Here's the problem for many of us, I believe, especially here in this section of this country, is that we treat Jesus like a belief system. So if you think about it, we've got different belief systems, right? Judaism, Islam, uh, Hinduism, secular humanism, bunch of isms. And what many of us do as Christians, we compartmentalize our lives, and so that's why we've got these boxes up here. And it's natural for us to compartmentalize our lives. Our lives are naturally geared to be put into different compartments. And so some of you, when you go to work tomorrow, you're going to go into your office or into your cubicle. Can you, can you even picture that? Can you see that space? And you're going to go there, and you're going to sit there until the allotted time on your calendar or your day planner or whatever it is, and then you're going to pull out your lunch, and your lunch is going to have, maybe you're eating a Lunchable, and so you've got the bologna in this section and the cheese in this section. Some of you don't want any of those things to touch each other, right? Like you're going to go through, it's all segmented, and you do certain things on Monday, and you do certain things on Wednesday, and you do certain things on Saturday, and you do certain things on Sunday, and so we're, we naturally compartmentalize our lives. And we do it in these ways with, our, with all of these sections of our lives that, that aren't necessarily laid out in a physical compartment. So I, I brought these boxes up here to, to kind of show you the different compartments. And so you got family, and you got to get the right things in the box. We treat it like a file system. So i got 2.2 kids and a fence, and then when they say Happy Mother's Day, I'll be like, that's me. I'm a hero. Boom. Got it. And then you got these other sections here. you got your hobbies, and man, we got hobbies in North Carolina, don't we? We got some hobbies, and all of our friends who aren't here today, they're climbing mountains and riding bikes, said, amen. All right, there we go. And then we, we got religion. So, and so for us, especially, I mean, Southerners in America, it's like we got to get the right thing in the box. And so we got Jesus, and then I go to church, and Pastor Scott quotes John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except for through me. Check, boom, amen, I'm in. Bam, got it. What's next? Money, go to my financial planner or whatever it is, get that all lined up, boom, get the right things in the box, got to have a plan because we've all seen the Fidelity commercial. I don't want to be the guy that stops too soon walking down the lit up path, right? So boom, line that up in the box, got our job. I don't know about my job. Let me tell you something. I meet with many of you. This is how this goes. I don't, is this what God wanted me to do? I don't really like it. Here's what's happening. You're trying to get something out of your job that your job's never meant to deliver. Not working. All right, got to work on that box. What do we got here? We got relationships. Oh boy. Yep, we could go for a long time on this one. Did I get the right spouse in the box? 
Okay, I gotta find the one. Hey, let me tell you, there's a myth about that. <laughs> there's some, you can figure out, like some people just don't work real well together, but there's not, you don't need to worry about the mystical one out there. One of my friendships, and some of you are looking for that, and like when you go to a small group, you're like, I didn't find the one, I didn't find the one. Let me, hey, they're human, they like Jesus? All right, you got it, you got enough, go for it, let's do this. And we try to get the right things in the right boxes. Let me tell you, there's some problems with that. Let's talk about the religion one specifically. First of all, Jesus doesn't want to be in your box. But the reality is, is this. He's not, he's not a system to be filed away. It's not an area to be checked. Jesus is a real person. Like a real, physical person. Not just a story about some guy who died 2,000 years ago. If you believe in the resurrection, which if you don't, you're not a Christian. But if you believe in the resurrection of Christ, he's still alive and interactive in your life today. So let me ask you this. Do you know him? Not can you check a box. Not do you believe John 14, 6. Not do you believe he died for your sins. Not did you have some experience when you were five at Awana or wherever else when you were 25. Do you know him? Remember the context. We can talk about this word knowledge here, but the context in chapters 1, 2, and 3 is a marriage. That's supposed to be an intimate relationship. It's supposed to be the most intimate relationship. And so some of us are comfortable talking about God as king, as master, as rule giver, as Lord. But what about his husband? Do you know him? Do you know him? Because he wants to know you. And it's not enough just to know the facts or even do things in his name. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 22 and 23, do you know what Jesus says? Jesus is speaking to people and he says, on that day, what day? Well, we sang about that day. On that day, some will say to me, Lord, Lord, wait, they, but if you call upon him as Lord, then aren't you good? No, it's not a magic formula. Did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? It was all in your name, Jesus. It's not like we had good intentions, but we just were raised in a Muslim family, or we had good intentions, but we ended up, we were these Hindus, or we were Sikh, or whatever it was. No, we're doing it in the name of Jesus Christ. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers, workers of lawlessness. Can you back that slide up? Because some of them were teaching bridge kids and serving at Southbridge Serbs, leading small groups, preaching in pulpits. I didn't, I didn't know you, but it was in your name. Do you know him? And, and then what happens in chapter 4, because we've got to get moving here, is in verses 4 through 14, it's poetic language about the consequences of their sin, which is exile. The same as Adam and Eve were removed from the garden, they're removed from their land, and then some more of the problems they had. Then chapter 5 says this, here, are you listening? Are you listening? Because I gave you all of chapter 4, and maybe you're not listening, maybe you're in denial. And so chapter 5, second point is this, that God speaks to us to discipline our denial. God speaks. Maybe God's speaking to you to expose your sin. Maybe you go, yeah, but that's not me. Suppress that. I want to think about something else. Just put that away. Don't worry. He's coming after you. He's relentless. He will discipline your denial of your sin. And that's what he does in chapter 5. Hear this, O priests. Oh, he's speaking to the leaders. Remember who you are, so you don't just think this is about me standing up on the stage. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Hear this, O priest, pay attention, O house of Israel. Don't blame, don't blame culture, don't blame politics, don't blame the president, don't blame uh, Planned Parenthood, don't blame when, you, when we in our own lives and our own hearts don't live this stuff out. Don't blame culture. Hear this, leaders, pay attention, O house of Israel, give ear, O house of the king, for the judgment is for you. 
For you have been a snare at Mizpah, and a net spread upon Tabor, and the revolters have gone deep into slaughter, but I will discipline all of them. These are his people. I know Ephraim, this northern kingdom, and Israel has not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you have played the whore. Israel is defiled. Your deeds do not permit you to return to their God, for the spirit of whoredom is within you, and they do not know the Lord. They use the Lord. They'll use his name for prosperity to get their wishes. They don't know the Lord. They, they, put, they put God, put Yahweh in their box. Got it lined up. Go to the right places for worship. Got the, the priest. I mean, they're priests. So I'm going to discipline you. Well, here's what you need to know about God's discipline. Discipline is not the same thing as punishment. Okay? The punishment went on the cross, Jesus Christ. But God disciplines you because he loves you. Hebrews chapter 12. We don't have time to read the whole passage. Hebrews chapter 12 says, God disciplines you because he loves you. What father hasn't disciplined his child? If God doesn't discipline you, that means you're illegitimate children. So all of us in this room that have been walking with Jesus for any amount of time, you've experienced God's discipline at times. God dis- Some people would argue that God disciplined Jesus in that Hebrews 5 passage, verse 8, when it says that he learned obedience. He's taking him, he learned obedience and he went to the next level of obedience. And he went to the ne- and that's discipline. You think about a coach disciplines his players. Not because they're being punished, but he's growing them to the next place. So God disciplines us, sometimes because of sin, sometimes not because of sin. What does God's discipline look like? You probably have questions about that. Read through the Bible. We're going to do communion next week. Every time we've done communion in the history of our church, a pastor, an elder, some leader in our church has stood up and said, hey, 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 before we do this, some of you shouldn't do this. Some of you shouldn't come up here. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, trust Jesus as your Savior. Don't come up here and get bread and, and juice and, and think about the body of Christ and the blood of Christ. You're just going through motions and you're calling judgment upon yourself. Some of you are Christians, you're not ready for whatever reason, sin, you need to deal with a relationship with another believer, whatever it is, don't do this. Do you know why? Do you know why we give that warning? 1 Corinthians chapter 11 says this, let a person examine himself and then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And then here's the interpretation, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some of you have died. That's God's discipline for taking communion without dealing with your sin. That's God's discipline. So what if, I'm not saying every person, but what if some people are sick in churches because of taking communion without dealing with their sin? And what if that's why some people have died prematurely? That's God's discipline. And we see other examples of that. Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5 because they were putting on false pretense and pretending to be more spiritual than they were, to be more generous financially than they actually were. They were lying about it. They were lying to the Holy Spirit and God killed them. Can you imagine what would happen to the church in America if God killed everybody today that was putting on pretenses to be more spiritual than you actually are? Tell you, attendance would not skyrocket, okay? (laughs) But would repentance? And then, then there's another one that some of you might even go, I want that kind of discipline. Uh, Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, here's God's discipline. He gives you what you want. You've got these desires, these lustful desires, and so he hands you over to them, and they'll never fulfill the desire that you have. I'll give you exactly what you want, and it's going to lead you to emptiness. It says it like this in Romans chapter 1. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their, ra- in their hearts into impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. It's true. And so what he's saying here in Hosea chapter 5 when he says he's going to discipline here, pay attention, listen up. He's going, wake up. You don't see it. And, and so he talks about these sins. But then verse 5, I didn't read to you yet. It says, the pride of Israel testifies to his face. You won't listen because you're so proud. 
And so it's like when Jesus is speaking to the church at Laodicea, and he says, you think you're rich and think you're well-dressed, and you're, but you're poor, you're blind, you're naked. I want you to see this, and so I'm going to discipline you so you see it. Remember the first time I got glasses? It was years ago. And then I could see clearly. I didn't even realize what I couldn't see. So I remember the day that I realized I needed glasses. I was watching football. I know football well enough. Not like, you know, Vince Lombardi or anything, but I know there's four downs. And I looked at the TV, and it said ninth down. I was like across the room. I was like, nine and seven, nine and seven. There's no ninth down. And I got like close enough to the TV. I'm like, oh, third and seven. I got a problem. Like this isn't good. So then I go to the eye doctor. I get glasses, and I put on glasses, and I said, you know, when is it that I'm going to realize how bad I need a glasses? He said, you're going to go to the mall, and you're going to see all these blurry faces, and then, and then you're going to realize when I put my glasses on, I see, I see pe- there's people here. These are not just like blur of blobs walking around because I could see. That's the point of the discipline. It's to wake us up so we can see. He disciplines our denial of our sin. And he's coming after you. And he's relentless. And his love is unfailing. And he disciplines you because he loves you. It's not for punishment. Your discipline is for restoration. That's why chapter 6 makes so much sense. So chapter 5 goes through and it outlines more of these sins. All these sins come to the spirit of whoredom. And then chapter 5 at the end, verse 11, 12, 13, 14, gives four images of discipline. And let me tell you what the point of all of them are. You lose. So you got verse 11, it's the guilty defendant. Verse 12, it's a discipline of destruction. Verse 13, there's an incurable wound. And what they do is they try to get the, the cure for the wound from the wrong place, from politics. Sound familiar? I was talking to a parent this week that was telling me about a parent meeting they were in. And then people were upset with teachers and education. And you hear it all the time. You just watch, read, go scroll through all of your friends from church, Facebook posts, and you see all the problems with politics that are out there. Let me tell you something. You can't legislate and you can't educate a new heart. So when our problems are spiritual problems and we go for political or educational or financial or whatever answers, that doesn't work. So he disciplines us for trusting in the wrong things. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim. And so then the picture he gives here is of a predator coming to destroy its prey. And then notice, I don't want you to miss the end of verse 14. He says, I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off and no one shall rescue. So he wants you to get this. Sometimes you think anything bad that happens in your life, that's Satan. Or it's, you know, reap what you sow. It's the consequence of my... God's saying, this is me. I caused the wound. I'm disciplining. I'm coming after you. I, even I, will tear my prey apart. And then he goes back to his house and he just waits. Verse 15. It's like the lion going to his home. I will return again to my place until, until we sang about Jesus coming back today. Do you know what 2 Peter chapter 3 says? He's not willing that any would perish. You know what he's waiting for? He's waiting for some of you who don't know Jesus to trust Christ. Some of we challenge everybody in our church to have one person. Maybe he's waiting for your one or somebody else's one to trust Christ before Jesus comes back. It's because he's patient. Not willing that any would perish. That's why Jesus doesn't come back. Until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. And then their distress earnestly seek me. And then in chapter 6, we see the third reason why God speaks. Now, some people think this is sarcasm. There's like debate between scholars. Is this sarcastic by God here or is this serious? I believe it's serious. And I believe if you don't get chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, then chapters 4 and 5 don't make much sense. Chapters 4 and 5 lead us to chapter 6, and what chapter 6 gives us is an invitation. See, God speaks to invite you to renewal. So God speaks to expose your sin. God speaks to discipline your denial, but God speaks to invite you to renewal. Look at verses 1 through 3. We see three parts of an invitation here. Come, there's the invitation. 
Let us, you don't do this on your own, let us return to the Lord. Why? For He, God, has torn us that He, God, may heal us. He broke so He can bless. He struck us down and He will bind us up. After two days, He will revive us. Some of you pray for revival. Revival is going to start with us, just so you know. On the third day, He will raise us up that we may live before Him. Let us, and notice this, let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. Do you know Him? His going out is sure. He's, you can count on Him as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers. What do showers do? They bring renewal. As the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth, that bring new life. That's, that's what He invites us to. But you see the invitation. The invitation is threefold. Come, come, come. And you see Jesus gives this invitation, come to me all who are weary and burdened and I'll give you rest for your soul. How does the book of Revelation, the end of the Bible end? The Spirit and the bride say, come. If anyone's thirsty, come. Why does Jesus call himself the bread of life? Why does he call himself the door? Why does he say that he's the living water? Because you've got desires in your hearts that are not being fulfilled in this world. And he's saying, come. Come to me. You're not where you want to be? Come. Come to me. Hey, this, the job thing's not working out because the job's not supposed to fulfill you the way that only I can fulfill you. Come. I'm going to give you what you want and then let you realize it does not fulfill. Now come. Come. It's not enough just to have me check in the file? Then come and know me. No. Did you see verse 3? No, that you would know. Why do you think it's in there twice? Remember the accusation? You don't know. There's no knowledge of God in the land. Their deeds won't let them return because there's no knowledge. Come so you can know. What's the context? Chapters 1, 2, and 3. Know like a spouse. Know intimately. Come. There's a second part. There's a second part to the invitation. Look at it. It's not me saying this. Look at what it says. It says, return, return to the Lord. Now, that's a theme throughout Hosea. You want some verses? Hosea chapter 2, verse 7, 3, verse 5, 12, verse 6. Let me tell you how the book ends. Hosea chapter 14, verse 7 says, they shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. Why? Because they returned Hosea 12, 6, so you, by the help of your God, return. Here he's saying return. What does it mean to return? Well, you've got to go back to where you were at one time. I heard another pastor preaching this week. It's good for preachers to listen to preachers too. Another pastor, his name is James McDonald, is preaching. He said that one of his favorite verses, I don't remember if he said it was his life verse, but one of his favorite verses is Colossians chapter 2 and verse 6. I don't know if you know Colossians 2, 6 or not. This says, as you began with the Lord, walk in him. Remember when you trusted Christ? Like when you genuinely bowed your heart before Him and knew Him? You began that relationship? That's what it means to return. Go back there. Go back there. As you started, go back there. That was a place of repentance. That was a place where you realized, I can't do this. That was a place where you were at the end of verse 15. Did you see the end of verse 15? Did you remember that? Hosea chapter 5, verse 15. It says, I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. And in their distress... You're overwhelmed. I can't fix this sin problem. I need a Savior. I need help. They seek my face, he says. That's what happened when you trusted Christ. That's your story. If you trusted Christ, that's your story. You realized you couldn't. You needed help. You went to Him. And so what is he saying here when he says, come, let us return. To go back. Go back there. Go back to that place. And some of you might not be all the way back to your salvation. Remember when you were at the mountaintop? When's the time when your faith was at its strongest? Remember the time when you were in God's Word, not because some pastor told you you need to spend 30 minutes a day or because somebody said that this is the right discipline, but you wanted to, this is the living God speaking to you. Do you want to know what He has to say? 
Remember when you didn't have to have a one because it was like an assignment from your church where you were like, my heart's breaking that I'm going to have eternal life and my neighbor isn't. Go back there. That's return. Go back. It's the prodigal son. When he realizes how empty life is, when he's gotten everything he wanted, and said, I'm better off with my father. I'm going back. It's return. You have to turn, but you're going back to what? If you don't have anything to go back to, that means you need to turn, not return. You need to turn to Christ. But if you turn to Christ and you're somewhere other than that mountain, go back, go back. That's what return means. But then there's the last part. The last part we usually miss as churches, just so you know. Do you see the last part of the invitation? Verse 3, let us, let us know. Okay, we want that. We long for that. Let us press on to know. And so oftentimes what we do is we'll drive to a decision. Hey, you've got a need. Your sin's overwhelming. You need to repent. Come up here. Fill up the altar. Everybody wants to repent. Come repent in this moment, and you think it's going to fix everything. And we miss this last part, press on. What does it mean to press on? It means... It means you need to keep going after God. We saw in chapter 3, he's relentlessly coming after us. That word press on is a military term. It means to chase, intensely, pursuing. That's you with God. You press on, you press into God. That means you do need the disciplines. That means you do need to get into the Scripture. That means you do need to spend time with Him. In prayer, fasting, how how much time? I'm not going to tell you that. However much time it takes. However long... Some of you, you think in, in your marriages, you think to yourself, I just want, I'm praying that God will give me a great marriage, and I'm praying, and the key is to change my spouse. Well, maybe God wants to change you, but okay. And you just, add, and you like passively sit by and hope and wish that your marriage will be great. Let me tell you something, it's not going to be great. You're being passive. You have to go after your spouse. And so guys, you've got you to buy her flowers or buy her whatever it is. If flowers are too cliche, whatever it is she likes, you've got to figure that out. How? You've got to go after her heart. You've got to find out what's going on in her heart. You've got to figure out what she wants. That means you need to spend time with her. You've got to talk with her. Prayer with God. You need to study her. That's like being in God's Word. You've got to listen to her. God speaks through His Word, teaching, rebuke, correcting. So a relationship with God is like a real, He's a real person. He wants a relationship with you. Relationships take work. You got to do the work. You don't just, oh God, if you would magically write on the wall what you want me to do. All right, maybe you're not speaking to me. I'll wait till tomorrow. See you later. No, you, you got to press in, press on. You got to be with him. It takes time with him. It's a real relationship, and he's inviting you into it. And then he tells us, look at the promises. He tells you what to do, but then he says, it's renewal. He will show up. It's as sure as the sun coming up and going down. It's as sure as the showers. What do shower, showers bring? New life. And some pollen in North Carolina. But, but new life. All the trees are going to be green soon. It's new life. And God will bring new life to you. He, wants, he invites you to renewal. He exposes your sin. He, he confronts. He deals with. He disciplines your denial. But He invites you to come to Him. And that's what we're going to do this morning. So I'm going to invite you to respond to Him. And we're going to bow our heads and close our eyes. And the worship team is going to come. Lead us in a song. Some of you need to come to Jesus for the first time. You don't know Jesus Christ is your Savior. You don't need to return to God. You need to turn to God. And if that's you, then I, and I want to challenge you that right now, that you call upon Him as Lord. That's not magic. But if in your heart you believe that Jesus rose from your dead and by faith you're going to trust what He did for you on the cross rather than what you do and the life that you live, then, then you call upon Him as Lord and ask Him to be your Savior. Some of you are followers of Jesus already, but you need to go back. You need to go back to a place. Some of you, many of you, probably are in that place. You're not at the peak. You're not in the valley, but you're in this wasteland. And so you need to return. 
He's inviting you to come and return to Him. Some of you need to lay a burden down. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest for your soul. And so what we're going to do is I'm going to ask, there's some prayer counselors here in the service. If you just come up to the front, if you want to pray with someone, just tell them your burden, you want them to pray with you, you can. If you want to pray on your own, just come down here and kneel down when you get up here, and the prayer counselors will leave you alone. But the worship team's going to sing a song. If you need to come, the invitation is to you to come. But here's the reality. You can have an encounter with God in this, this moment, but you've got to continue to press on in relationship with Him when you walk out of here. So what's that going to look like? You can't do that in isolation. You need other people in your life. You need accountability. Get in a small group. Tell your small group. Tell these one of these prayer counselors. They'll help connect you to a small group. If you need to come, you come. And so let's all stand together. Unless you, if you want to continue to be seated, you're welcome to do that. We're not forcing you to stand, but we're going to stand to sing this song. And if the Lord's speaking to your heart, I challenge you to have the courage to, to do something about it. Don't become like verse 5 where you become hardened because of your deeds, your pride. You can't return. If God's calling you to return, then, then I call you to return. So we've got one lady that will be down here in the front, a gentleman that will be over here, and a couple more I believe that will come.